You are listening to the Good Shepherd Bible Church Sermon Podcast. Our mission at Good Shepherd is to proclaim the gospel so that all people will believe, grow, and hope in Jesus. One of the main ways we believe that we are accomplishing our mission is through the proclaimed word. We believe that the preached word creates and sustains the church. Our desire is to preach Christ crucified for you which means we hope that Jesus is the substance and hero of every sermon and that Jesus is preached into the places of sin and brokenness into our hearts. We thank you for joining us and hope that you will believe, grow, and hope in Jesus. Father, just to be someone with a a place at your table, Father, what a grace. What a tremendous grace. Father, when we were the ones who midweek this week, early in the week, laden with guilt and full of fear. Father, in reality, there are times we didn't even run to you. There are times we hid. There are times we made excuses. We walked away. We hoped you wouldn't come find us. And yet when we look in the pages of your written word, we see the face of our Savior, and we can't help but think of all the grace that Jesus has won for us, and we see our names there with the, with the place setting and the meal and the feast in front of us, all the riches of your grace, and there's our name, once your enemy now seated at your table. Oh God, what a grace. You've been so faithful to us. You have loved us even before we thought about getting around to maybe loving you. Father, you've given us a love that is like a mother's love. A love that's unconditional. A love that doesn't ask for any love backs. In one sense, a love that is purely dutiful and yet a love that also is purely delightful. Father, it's not merely that you have done all the things that an unconditional uh, loving mother would do out of duty. Father, you have also, like a mother, you've taken delight in us. You've actually rescued us with shouts of deliverance. Father, you have loved us so well. And Father, when we do look at our life, uh, we recognize, Father, it's almost pitiful. We're, we're, we're like pitiful children. We feel like all we've done is take from you. All we, all we have done, like selfish children, we've lived in your house, we've eaten your food, and we've done it all pretty ungratefully. Uh, but Father, it's almost like you don't care. It's almost, like, it's almost like we're your children and you just love us because that's who you are. Oh, Father, what a delight to have you in our lives. What a delight that somehow you allowed us to have our eyes opened and our ears opened to hear your word and to see your love and to respond in any sort of meaningful way. Father, why have you chosen us? But Father, we're certainly grateful that you have. We're overflowing with joy that you have. Father, for the mothers that you also take delight in here, for the women of our church longing to be mothers, for those spiritual mothers who have raised us up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, uh, who continue to teach us your ways, who continue to lead by example and uh, do the, uh, in, w- in one sense, the, the menial tasks that, that a mother might do behind the scenes, and yet they're so wonderfully 
beautiful tasks in your sight and in our sight, Father. I pray that you would continue to bless these women, continue to, to strengthen them, continue to use them and fortify them, continue to encourage their hearts, build them up for the sake of your body, for the sake of your kingdom. Father, we're reminded of the things that you have uh, put in, in Scripture that remind us that women are of great faith. Women are of great value. Women are loved. And women know how to love well. And Father, we, as women, go before us and train us and raise us up. Father, we have a lot to learn from them. So Father, continue to bless them so that we, the church, might be blessed. So that we, as your people, might be blessed. So that this world might be blessed. We pray these things through Christ. Amen. You may be seated. You can turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11. If you have a fancy journal, that's on page 64, but we're also really going to spend a lot of time on page 66. So we're at the stage in the book of Acts where uh, there are, there are going to be, there's, there's going to be times where we're actually going to be able to go a little bit of light speed through. And there's some, there's, there's some uh, recognition to the fact that there's, there's some repeating elements uh, from, from here on out. Uh, there are some, some questions as to why Luke includes so much detail. There are a lot of questions. None of this means that these passages that we might mention uh, or, or go quickly over are unimportant. Certainly they're the inspired word of God meant for our good. Uh, but it also may be helpful for our study that we move a little bit quicker through them. Chapter 11 is, is part of that. Uh, so we'll go ahead and read the entire chapter, but we're going to spend a lot of our time in verses 19 uh, through the end. Uh, so pay attention as we read. In fact, if you missed last week, uh, verses 1 through 18 are going to be a great, sur- like a little recap for you. Like, well, what, ha- what happened last week? Well, you're about to find out. We're going to get a little recap here in verse 1. All right. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party, that's the Jews, criticized him, saying, you went to the uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began to explain it to them in order. Well, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, uh, being let down from... Uh, from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air, and I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean do not call common or unclean. And this happened three times, and all was drawn up into heaven once again. And behold, at the very moment, three men arrived in the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in the house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved you and your household. As I begin to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as at the beginning, like in Acts 2. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized me with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. 
If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, Then the Gentiles also, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except to the Jews. There were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, that's the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came, he saw the grace of God. He was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year they met with the church and taught great many people. And in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. And this took place in the days of Claudius. The disciples determined, everyone according to his own ability, to send relief to the brothers in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Remember a couple weeks ago, we talked about a personal church growth strategy. Uh, I'd be curious to know if you guys remember. I'll, we'll do a little, uh, ask, ask the audience, a little audience poll. Who remembers the two elements of church growth that we, that we talked about? A kick-butt media team and money. Uh, wrong answer. Suffer- hmm, that's a surprising answer. You took notes, good job. Suffering as a church growth plant. Yeah, suffering. It's one of the key things that uh, this, this draws out. Remember from, from the Apostle Paul. Remember, I must show him all that he must suffer for the sake of the name. This was God's church growth plan. Good, what else? What was the other thing? Suffering and? Strugglings with suffering and the... And grace. Good, You've got to struggle with suffering. So if the church is going to grow in any sort of meaningful, organic way, in other words, not just grow, you can always add people, right? You can always add people. There's lots of ways you can add people, right? The, the Ohio State Buckeyes know how to add people, right? Okay, so that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about like organic, actual life-giving, resurrection life-giving growth. How is that going to happen? Well, we talked about the two things of suffering, struggling with suffering, that's an upside-down value system for you. And wrestling with grace. Wrestling with that, this idea of non-merit, unconditional, free, by-the-seat-of-your-pants living. Yeah, you've got to wrestle with that. That's a hard thing for us to process, especially as, as Americans who like things clean-cut, who like measurements and lines and weights and scales. We like all those things. Why? Because they make sense. They help us order our lives. They give us constructs and measuring sticks of how to deal with people and even how to deal with our own life. When bad things happen to good people, we get really confused. 
when good things happen to bad people, well, yeah, it's also just as confusing in a, in a different way. And yet God's church growth plan is for us to struggle with suffering. The up way is down in God's, in God's kingdom, but also to wrestle with grace, to come to grips with the scope of God's grace. So we're going to see a little bit of this as we discuss a new church blossoming in a brand new area, which we know all about that, don't we? A new church blossoming in an area. That's hard to do. It's hard to come up with a brand new church. Certainly there are other churches in our area. But in terms of us starting a new church, well, what sort of things do we need? And so for us, we've hunkered on three particular values. I don't know if you remember all these values, so ho- hopefully, hopefully you remember some of these, right? The three values that, that we believe in, that we are committed to, is the gospel, community, and our mission. And we think that the verbs that kind of go along with that are believing in the gospel, growing in community, and hoping on mission. So that's why we say our mission is to help people believe, grow, and hope in Jesus. See that, Matt? Good. All right. So tonight, we have this brand new church that's blossoming here in the Gentile world. And if your question is, well, what is the church growth strategy for them? Well, it's no different than it's always been in the book of Acts. We're going to see that. But also, we're going to see, and this is a little bit encouraging for us, that their mission was the same as ours. Their values were the same as ours. If you wondered where we got our values, it'd be right from the Word of God, specifically the book of Acts, where this church begins to believe, then to grow, and then to hope in Jesus. That's what we're looking at here tonight. And like all good church growth stories begin, we see in verse 1 that this church growth story happens, verse 19, those who were scattered because of persecution. Like all church growth, good church growth, meaningful church growth, resurrection church growth, it happens because there's persecution. It's struggling with suffering. If you remember, if you flip back uh, to chapter 8, verse 1, you can see exactly where this picks up. Really, this is kind of like a uh, uh, kind of like a sequel to the story in chapter 8, verse 1. In fact, if you turn there in your, in your journals, it's page 46. Uh, remember, this goes all the way back to Stephen's stoning, uh, Stephen's martyrdom. And in verse 1, we have this alarming, uh, remember going back in time here, kind of when Paul was unconverted, Saul approved of Stephen's execution. Remember the dark times of, of Saul. But then there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except for the the apostles. They they stayed put. But everybody else scattered. And this is the scattering that we get here in chapter 11. If you get down to verse 4, you said, all right, the people scattered. Well, what did they do once they scattered? Here's an alarming thing. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Ha ha! The, uh, the, the, uh, Satan's plan backfired, didn't it? They scattered, but they were preaching the word. They were like dandelions, right? You blew on it, you're like, I'm picking this dandelion because I'm picking it out of my yard. I'm getting rid of this dandelion, but on the way out, you blow it. You just, the dandelion won. The dandelion just won. And this is exactly what happened here in the church. Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose from Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, And here's a little detail that Luke brings back again, speaking the word to no one except to the Jews. Remember back at this time, 
they hadn't realized that God had a plan for the Gentiles. And certainly that was always God's plan. It was communicated. But in their own kind of blindness, they hadn't recognized Peter's vision. They hadn't heard about Peter's vision. And so they were going around preaching the gospel, but they were preaching it to the Jews. And there was an element, if I can say it this way, there was an element of the gospel that they were missing. There was a scope to God's grace that, they were, that, that was limited for them. They thought the scope of God's grace was limited just to the Jews at this point. But yet they went, uh, went around preaching the word uh, to, to the Jews here. And uh, you, can, you can definitely see this uh, theme kind of going in, into the book of, uh, into chapter 11 here. Uh, if you go back to verse 1 real quick, no, notice this real quick in chapter 11. The apostles and brothers went throughout Judea and heard that the Gentiles also, this, this word comma is actually going to prove pretty fruitful and pretty, pretty significant for us. Gentiles also. Yes, Jews. Yes, Jews. It was always to the Jews. Christ was always meant for the Jewish people. But Gentiles also. That's a cool little theme. All right, now I'll go back to uh, verse 18. When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also. Gentiles also, they get in. And then if you go uh, to just a couple of verses up in verse 20, uh, but there were some of them men of Cyprus and Cyrene who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, or in other translations you might have, to the Greeks also. And remember, Paul picks up on this theme. Paul even uses this lingo, right? I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? It's the power of God unto salvation for all who believe, to the Jews first and also to the Greek. This helps us understand the nature of God's grace and what is actually happening here as uh, God's gospel movement goes forward. And this helps give a little bit of clarity here to the distinction between the Jews in verse 19 and the Hellenists in verse 20. If you actually did a lot of research, remember this, remember this term Hellenists? Remember we talked a little bit about this, uh, this group of people? These were Greek-speaking Jews. Uh, it, it gets a little tricky in this passage here uh, with this distinction. You have the Jews that they're speaking to no one else except but to the Jews. And then you have men from Cyprus and Cyrene who are now in these areas and they're preaching to the Hellenists. And you're like, well, why would, they be pr- why would, they make, why would Luke draw up this distinction? You have they're preaching to the Jews and then they come over here and they're preaching to the, Gentile, uh, to the, to the Greek-speaking Jews. Why is that a helpful distinction? It gets a little tricky. In fact, a lot of people... Um, in different translations, you'll actually have it worded Greeks. But in the ESV, I think they translate it well of just leaving it Hellenists. It's like, well, why is, that, why is that important? Why is that significant? Because they're helping us to see this distinction. You have the Jews who leaned on their Judaism. They leaned on their tradition. They leaned on their entire nationality for salvation. It's a huge part of salvation for them. We are the Jewish people. It was a huge part of uh, what they believed to, uh, how, how they were made right before God. And then you have these other men who, for some reason and in some way, we don't necessarily know exactly how they heard of Peter's vision or the expanding scope of God's grace, but men from Cyprus uh, and, uh, and the African nation of Cyrene who were coming to Antioch and they're speaking to the Greek-speaking Jews. They're speaking to the Hellenists and they're trying to evangelize them. And you can imagine that conversation. Greek-speaking Jews. So these people are, 
are Greek. They're Gentile by, by, by nationality. They're also Greeks culturally. They're, they're Greeks in their language. And yet, in some sense, they've gone to the Jewish religion and say, if I need to be right before God, I'm going to use Judaism to get there. And now you have these men who understand the scope of God's grace, and they're literally trying to knock that prop right underneath from them. If I can say it this way, it would be very difficult for, uh, for, for anyone to come to a, a Jew and try to knock off the idea of Judaism straight from their theology. That would be extremely difficult. Extremely difficult. But then you go up to a Greek-speaking Jew, and you knock Judaism out from underneath them, and what do they have left? Nothing. I mean, it, it literally feels like at this point, if you, if you, if you basically say, hey, re- religion according to the law is not going to save you. Jesus came and he fulfilled the law on your behalf. Judaism is not the way. Jesus is the way. You say that to a Hellenist, you've knocked out every prop except Jesus. Every prop. So they're like flying out of an airplane. So that would open this idea of this distinction between why there's ministry to the Jews here and why there's this ministry to the Hellenists. You're literally knocking out the entire prop of everything they've built their life on. And certainly it's the same message to the Jews. It's not any different message. You just have to probably spend a lot more time. And this is why Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 1, we preach Christ crucified. It's a stumbling block to the Jews, but it's nonsense to the Greek. It doesn't make sense to the Greek, but it's a literal offense. It's a literal stumbling block to the Jew. So here in this passage, we're seeing that the gospel is beginning to be clarified here in this area and that the Gentiles also are now being targeted for salvation. And yet Luke provides this amazing account of what salvation is truly like. I tried to emphasize this in the reading. In our passage here, we have this idea of to the Lord or of the Lord five times in this passage. I almost kind of feel like rereading it, but start, start with, uh, chapter, uh, start with uh, verse 20 real quick. Men of Cyprus and Cyrene who were coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. And this report came, and you go all the way down uh, to verse 23. And when Barnabas came, he saw the grace of God. He was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord. In uh, verse 24, he was a good man full of the Spirit. Great many people were added to the Lord. And you can see kind of what Luke is trying to do. You have, these, uh, you have this, this different method of salvation, this different uh, way or advertisement of salvation, this, this life by Judaism, this tr- whole new way. And Luke is trying to make this distinction here that the salvation that these Gentiles were experiencing, that the, the salvation and the gospel that they were confronted with was purely of the Lord. What was preached They were preaching the Lord. Who was sovereign in the preaching? Who was sovereign in salvation? Well, the hand of the Lord. The hand of the Lord in Scripture is often used of either judgment or deliverance. And here, clearly, it's meant in this idea of deliverance. The hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number of those who believed turned to the Lord or repented to the Lord. They turned from every other way that they were facing, and they went and they believed to the Lord. And so Barnabas exhorts them, remain faithful to the Lord. 
and many were added to him. From start to finish, we see this whole scope of God's salvation. It was all about Jesus. And so in believing, oh, going backwards, every time, every time. Is this ever not going to happen? Oh, wait, wait, which one? Oh, I don't see it. Okay, there we go. I have this uh, quote here from John Stott. Uh, let me read it. Read it here real quick. When we see the Lord adding to the Lord so that he is both subject and object, source and goal of evangelism, we have to repent of all self-centered, self-confident concepts of, Christ, of the Christian mission. Do you see that? He is both the subject and the object. He is both the source and the goal of our salvation. And if that's true, and it is, then we have to abandon every aspect of self-salvation or self-centered theology. And this is what we begin to see. The Gentiles also targeted as God's uh, objects of God's grace. So this church was, at its core, was centering everything on the work of Jesus. Preaching Christ crucified, no matter what it cost. This is why we even hold to the reformational treatises, and I think they're very important. It's not just that we believe that Scripture is important. It's not just that we believe that grace is important or that faith is important. It's not, those, are, those things are true. But the, the thing that we qualify those things with is this idea of alone. It's grace alone. There's nothing else. It's faith in what Jesus has done alone. There isn't anything we add to it. It's Jesus or bust. It's Jesus plus nothing. That is it. That's the equation of salvation. And so we see that believing in Jesus in this way is its own kind of wrestling with grace, as the Gentiles also have every prop knocked out from underneath them. We also see these folks, this church, believing in Jesus, but we also see this church growing in Jesus. We see them growing in Jesus. This happens in verse 22 through 26. We've read uh, bits and pieces of this, but you can imagine now as a multinational, multicultural, yet sola church, Right? Let, me, let me kind of explain that again. As a new, multicultural, multinational, yet unifyingly exclusive to Jesus church, that might, that might need a little checking up on. Can you, can you imagine for the first time, there's now every race available. Now for the first time, there's every language acceptable. Now for the first time, Every person who's ever walked the globe now has a full entry because of Jesus into the throne room of grace, is welcomed into the life of the Christian family, united to Jesus himself. How, how that, could, that could foster a lot of issues. And we can imagine that in our day, how that would foster a lot of issues. And how much good pastoring would be need, to, need to be done in terms of helping us understand that it's not... Uh, male or female or slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. It'd be very important for pastors to champion. It just centers on him alone. And so you can come from wherever you are, but the whole point is that we are all united together in him. 
He's the reason for our existence. And so Barnabas is sent to check on the church. Barnabas is sent to actually, like, hey, they, they might need some actual, like, pastoring and true care, because this might get a little out of hand. And so he goes. And this is part of growth in any church process. Good leadership, good pastoral leadership, doing pastoral leadership type things. And we see this in Barnabas. Later on in chapter 13, Paul is actually going to be handed this church, and this is going to be Paul's church plant. Paul's going to be the the pastor here in, in Antioch. Uh, but for now, Paul, uh, Paul and Barnabas, specifically Barnabas, go and just check on how things are going in this multicultural, multinational, yet sola Christ church. Here's a couple things that he sees. This, this kind of reminds me of like, uh, uh, for those of you who have, who have had kids, you have your first kid and like your parents are like constantly wanting to like kind of just check in on you just to make sure you're doing okay because they know how like hard it is, right? Like, hey, this is a culture shock. Like, you guys are probably drowning. Uh, how are you guys doing? And they're a little bit like, hey, how you doing? H- how's it going? And you're like, ah, I don't know. It's, it's fine. By the third kid, you're like, it's fine, mom. Like, don't even call. We're good. It's all right. But that first kid, it's like, you just want to check. It's chaotic. It's a scene. This is kind of how Barnabas might feel. Like, you guys, you guys are right. I know this grace thing's a little crazy at times because you're dealing with that guy, and then you're dealing with that guy, and we all know that guy, right? He's like, I'm just going to check. And here's what he finds. He finds, first of all, the grace of God. He comes to examine. And what does he see when he examines the church? In verse 23, when he came, he saw the grace of God. Oh, that that would be said about our church. That when people come, they see the grace of God. This is a place where people are ministers because of God's grace but this is a place where people are ministers of the same grace that they've, they've, they've received. May that be said of our church. But he saw that. He saw that. All the things were different. Everything was crazy. Everything was new. Things could have gotten really out of control. But when they centered on the work of Jesus, what did he see? He saw the grace of God, and he was glad. He examined what was going on, and there was grace. And so he then exhorted them. He exhorted them in verse 23, hey, what you guys are doing right here is a great thing. Stay faithful. And what he means by that is not necessarily this virtue as much as he means keep the main thing the main thing. You guys were started by grace. You guys need to carry on by grace. Remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. You stick with him. It's Christ alone ever, always. Don't move. Don't add. You guys are perfect the way you are. Don't get cute. My favorite thing to say about like corporations, marketing ploys, stop getting cute. Keep the main thing the main thing. Your canes, one love, roof woof. Do it. Stay faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Don't move away. But in doing this, he also exemplified. Be faithful to the Lord. He says this, and as he exhorts them, they all recognize, man, he was a good man. This is a good man, full of the Spirit. And here's here's something else that's really important, and of faith. Full of the Spirit and of faith. 
Notice it doesn't say like, man, they, they listened to his exhortation because he had great marketing schemes. They listened, they listened to Barnabas because he had great leadership skills. He, he, was, he was awesome because, man, he just, he was a great speaker. None of, he didn't say any of those things. He was a good man. Why? Because he was full of the presence of God. He was full of the Holy Spirit. And he was a man not resting on his own laurels, but on the laurels of another who died in his place. He was a man of faith. Jesus alone. Like what makes a good Christian leader? Well, someone who is consistently being killed and being made alive by faith in Jesus Christ. Ministers of grace because they're ministers by grace. But also he went to equip. And in verse 24, for a whole year, uh, Paul, uh, Barnabas actually goes and brings Saul back to the church. And for a whole year, in verse 26, for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. They went to actually hunker down for a year, make disciples, teach the doctrine, teach the church, encourage it, equip it, get it ready to go for its mission. It's also another great thing that leaders do in the church. They humbly make disciples who can teach other disciples. And in Antioch, the disciples here were first called Christians. This is where they first got their moniker, which is interesting, I think, because from, from this point on, then you're going to eventually have a story of, of hoping in Jesus and a little bit of missionality carried on. But you understand, like, from this point, from this little detail here that we have of Luke, what we get here is they're called Christians first and foremost because of their commitment to the clarity of their theology. It was, it was actually a clarified theology that Barnabas gives to them and say, it's Christ ever, only, always, remain faithful to him, don't move, don't budge, don't add, be people of faith. And he builds them up in this, teaches them this way, and boom, they're called Christians. So that's what makes a Christian. Now certainly that faith gets busy. Certainly that faith acts and grows, and there's probably things even unsaid here in that year that we don't have written. But it seems pretty clear here that Luke's mentioning this little detail here, specifically in relation to their commitment to Jesus alone. What an awesome testament for us is that our theology is central to what we do. Right? The Word creates faith, which is then active in love. The word is the thing that generates power in us. The word of Christ, merely his promise to us of this unconditional love in Jesus is the gas that runs the entire engine of our souls. And it should be the first thing on our lips. Now, it gets busy. And this is where we see that the Christians then begin to hope in Jesus. So they have believing in Jesus, growing in Jesus, but then they begin to hope in Jesus. In these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem and warned them, hey, there's a, there's a famine that's about to be throughout the land. And this is actually a recorded event. Josephus picks this up. Other historians pick this up. Luke even drops this line. This took place in the days of Claudius. So this is actually a registered historical event here. The prophets were right. Uh, and so what, do the, what does the, this young, growing church do? The disciples determined this. And I think this is a very important line for us to really consider and, and think about here. Everyone according to his own ability to send relief. Everyone. Everyone. And remember, this is a multicultural, multinational, multi-everything church at this point. There's 
There's no, there's no restrictions on who at this point. And yet everyone is dialed in to, to offer relief here. Everyone. But it's also according to their ability. It's according to their abilities, recognizing that God hasn't asked you to give your neighbor's gift. God isn't asking you to serve in your neighbor's service. God is specifically addressing you, asking you, where are the areas of hope and where are the areas of relief that you would actually like to see, that God has put on your heart, where you'd actually like to give some hope? Everyone according to his own ability. How has God equipped you? What kind of gifts and graces has God given you? Not to be compared with the everyone's around you, but simply in proportion to what God has given you. Everyone according to his own ability. Which means you don't have to be jealous of your neighbor's gift. You don't, you don't have to be jealous of your neighbor's uh, skill set. You don't have to be uh, jealous of your neighbor's station in life. You don't have to be jealous of your neighbor's fill in the blank. God has asked you to serve in the way that he's called you to serve, and that's on purpose. So everyone, according to his own ability, to send relief. And no, this isn't the next economic policy for the church. This is not some sort of Marxist ploy for communism within the church. This is a recognition that the cross and resurrection bring healing to this world. It's a, it's a, it's a witness to the fact that as Jesus walked out of the grave, so God intends for the newness of life to begin to take over this planet for the redemption of all things to begin taking place in the lives and communities of his people. The redemption found in Jesus is at work to set things right. And here we have a multicultural, multinational restoration at work. This is a union of both word and indeed for this group of people. This is a faith-filled offering that brought relief. Where, where in this world do we need relief? Better question. Where in this world do we not need relief? <laughs> better question. Much better question. Jesus has given us grace as his people, armed with his grace, called out by his grace, to be ministers of his grace, to bring this kind of relief to the people who are broken and hurting around us. This is why he's called us. This is the, the flow out of God's grace for us. And in the, uh, in the face of brokenness, God has equipped his body to bring restorative hope to this world. Talked with a, a guy this week, um, and we were just talking about personal struggles and, and kind of the things we face. And there was a conversation that, that literally that kind of ended in like, I don't, I don't, I, at times, if I'm being really honest with you, at times I really believe that this will never get better. It'll, it'll just never get better in, in this particular area. Sure, other areas, I mean, sure, maybe, okay. But in this area, I mean, I feel really defeated. I feel like really there's, there's just, you just kind of have to survive it right now. And that's where it's at. 
And it's easy for us, because we see so much brokenness in this world, it's easy for us to lose, lose sight of the fact that God has actually given us together this grace, the grace that God has given us, and it's, pu- it's, it's, pa- it's uh, empowered by his resurrection power. That is the force, that is the, the oomph with which he has given us to minister with and to minister to. And he says, this is for the sake of the relief in this, bro- in this broken world. Go and minister the gospel. As we mentioned already, I, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation, a full redemption. And though we might not see everything as it needs to be, there is hope that there can be and actually is restoration and redemption seen in this world. That is a hope I truly lose sight of. And even in the moment, I'm recognizing, do I actually believe that? And yeah, I do, as crazy as it sounds. And we have this here recorded in Scripture for our benefit. The disciples determined everyone according to his own ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, and they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. They actually made a difference. They actually were able to say, like, you know, that that really brought us relief in the middle of this famine. Thank you, church, for being the hands and feet of Jesus and offering us a little bit of what redemption will be like in the eschaton, in the, in, the last, in the last days, it will be all like this. But thank you for a little bit of that glimpse to remind us that one day, it's all going to be okay. My friend, this is what God has called us to do in believing, growing, and hoping in Jesus. This is God's salvation plan. That the body of Christ here on this earth, filled with the grace of Jesus, empowered by the Spirit, as we are continuing to be examined and we see the grace of God at work, as we continue to be exhorted to remain faithful to Jesus and Jesus alone, we'll see people exemplifying this grace that God has given us, full of the Spirit and just faith-filled. And as they're equipped and as they're trained for this mission, we'll see that actually there can be relief in this world. And I pray that that would be a, a token quality of our church. And people would look at us and be like, hey, those are, those are Christians. Not for our glory, but literally for the sake of relief of the brokenness. People would be like, this is salvation. This is what it looks like to be in Christ, to have all things be made new. This is a a glimpse of that. So my friend, I I, I just challenge you because the reality is I, I get tripped up by this idea of everyone according to his own ability, which personalizes it for you. Say, where has God called you? And nobody is insignificant here. Nobody's role is insignificant. Remember the, the multicultural, multinational, uh, 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 all these things. Like, it doesn't matter where you're coming from. Everyone has an ability and a gift. Everyone has been given the grace of God to be able to serve and bring hope to this world and in some way. Maybe it starts in your family. Maybe it starts in your workplace. Maybe it starts in your, your marriage relationship. Mar- maybe this starts one-on-one uh, with a buddy or a girlfriend. Maybe this happens at church. Maybe this happens in your community group. Maybe this happens with the, 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 the gas uh, person down the street as you're just paying for gas. And you hear a little bit of the brokenness in their life. How can you minister to them? This is God's church growth plan for us, that we believe, grow, and hope in Jesus. So let's be faithful to him. Let's pray. Father, we give you great praise today that you have given us this grace so that we might be a blessing to other folks, to be a relief here. 
Father, I thank you for the relief that you've offered us. That though there is much sin, grace super exceeds our sin and that we are washed in the blood of the Lamb. Your blood has washed away our sin. So there's no more place for guilt or shame or condemnation. It's all finished in Jesus. Father, what a relief. Father, we have brothers and sisters and a place to belong. No matter where we come from, no matter what we're doing, we have a place to come underneath the cross to sit and to recognize your grace. Father, what a grace. So help us to live in light of that this week. Help us to minister in light of that this week. Father, even continue to send us relief. We do hope in you. And we pray these things through Christ. Amen. to the